Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 99. On today's show, we talked to Dr. Greg Griffin about fuel use in the past. What did they use? What did they use it for? And are we using any of that now? Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. And I'm going to welcome my guest, Dr. Greg Griffin. How you doing? Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing great. So let's talk about fuel. As I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to talk about fuel use in ancient times. And I got to be honest, I have literally never thought about this. I mean, I was in the Navy. We deal with fuel all the time. We were on a nuclear reactor, you know, eight nuclear reactors in the ship I was on. So there's fuel there. I'm a pilot. We always talk about fuel there. But I've never thought about fuel use in ancient times. And I'm curious as to what that means. But before we really get into that, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and and where you're at now? And then we'll talk about how you got into this. Sure. So I'm originally from New Jersey, and now I live in the city of Bradford in the UK in West Yorkshire. I originally got into archaeology through William Patterson University in New Jersey. I, I was taking their anthropology course. They offered a field school. It brought me to the Orkney Islands, which I had never heard of before then. And my first day on the site, I just absolutely fell in love with archaeology and knew that was what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Nice. From there, I decided to start studying at the University of Bradford. I did my master's and and then subsequently my PhD there as well. And I've been doing archaeology for almost a decade now. Well, fantastic. So what got you interested in thinking about historic fuels? So it's it's actually kind of a strange story. It's, it's something that's so ubiquitous for everybody now. Everybody needs fuel for everything. And it's it's something that really kind of ties us back to the past almost, you know, for as long as man has been around and been making fire, fuel has been a major concern. It's one of those things. So on my first couple of digs in the Orkney Islands, every day we had to walk, it was about a mile to, to the site, and you have to walk through fields with sheep, fields with cows fields with horses. And mm-hmm. obviously, as you're walking through fields with all, the, with all the livestock, you come across poop. And you think, you know, one of those thoughts is people have been keeping animals and have had livestock for thousands and thousands of years. What did they do with all the poop? And then, I, and then that started me looking into what other kind of fuels can people even use? How long have people been using fuel on a regular basis? And then what kind of things can you apply scientifically to tell what fuels are what? You know, sometimes you're digging out a feature and all you have is ash deposit and you're wondering, if I, if I knew what these people were burning, that would give me a pretty good insight into their relationship with the landscape, into their relationship with the environment. It might even be able to tell me what they were doing. And then I thought if you could figure out what temperature the fuels were being heated to, that would give you an even better idea of what people were doing. And that kind of des- designed my, my research from there. 
So, I mean, you mentioned animal poop, but what about human? I mean, they had their own too. Was there a taboo against that? I mean, let's just put it out there. (laughs) All the research that I've done, I've never seen anything about a taboo against using it. I know that around the 17th century is when using poo as a fuel actually kind of becomes, you know, a no-no. There's some writing, you know, in Orkney. When you look at the, the Northern Isles, they start to kind of thumb their noses at some of the certain isles that still use poo as fuel. So one of them is uh, Sanday. There's like a little poem about it. It says, uh, I've, I've been to Egglesea and I've been to Wire, but I've never been to Sandy where the coo dungs fire. <laughs> it's this kind of thing that really, as, as you start researching fuel, you realize how, how it's just involved in everything and how it's everywhere. And then you think, you know, these people are getting made fun of because all they had was cow poo to burn. And, you know, it's actually quite a good fuel. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's interesting there was a taboo on that. Do you know if that was, before we start talking about fuels again, do you know if there was a religious reason for that or was just like an unclean poor person thing to do and it was sort of a high society thing not to do that? I mean, if it was efficient. I think that's what it was. Obviously, wood is always going to be the gold standard for fire fuel, especially in ancient times. Sure. And then I think anything other than wood is kind of viewed as an alternative. But when you look at places like the Orkney Islands that are a fringe society and, and on the fringe environmentally as well, you know, there are no trees there really after about 5,000 years ago. So what are these people using for fuel? If if the gold standard is taken out of the equation, what becomes the gold standard? Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people have to use what, what they're using. And then obviously the connotation of somebody has to go out and grab the poo and dry it and deal with it and handle it. And I think as hygiene becomes more of an issue and people start, sort of start classing themselves within the classes, if that makes sense. You know, uh, people in Orkney would have all been from from the same area. They would have all been, you know, doing the same kind of livestock work, the same kind of occupations. But if, you know, oh, that guy's burning poop, I'm burning wood. So I must, I must be a little bit more in high society than the guy, you know, out in the fields grabbing poo to cook his dinner. Right, right. I'll bet some of the higher ups over there were probably having wood delivered more than likely, you know, brought in from afar. Well, that's that's one of the things you start to get into is is at what point does having a, a network, a logistical network of bringing wood to these marginal places, at what point does that become viable? You know, and, and that's another question that obviously, you know, you need to do a lot more widespread research, not just, you know, my, my, my research is basically just case studies on a few certain sites and a few snapshots in time on these sites. But if you could look at you know, an overall blanket coverage kind of study, you could possibly figure out where some of this stuff is coming from and when it starts to work its way in. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at this fuel use in in other regions, other countries? So I have done a little bit of research, obviously just armchair research, looking at what people burn around the world just to figure out how it applies to the Northern Isles. There's camel dung used in the Middle East. There's a really interesting fuel from when I was in the Republic of Kiribati that they use. It's the leftovers from coconut trees. So it's the Hmm. sawdust of the coconut tree and then a little bit of the coconut fat and it's pressed into a log and they use that as a fuel as well. So, you know, it's, it's basically literally whatever people have around them they'll figure out how to make it into a fuel or make it useful. That's, I think, where the two most interesting that I found in modern times that are still in use today. But people are using alternative things like that all over the place. Yeah, I mean, use what you got. We all have two common things. We got to stay warm and we've got to eat. Exactly. Typically, we cook our food. So Exactly. Do you know if any of these fuels historically were not safe for cooking? You know, like I'm, I'm thinking of modern Presto logs and they always say, hey, don't roast marshmallows over a Presto log because it's actually full of chemicals. But I'm wondering if there's any evidence for certain fuels that were really just designed for heat or safe for heat. I mean, you can't stop people from cooking over it, but maybe they'll get sick and learn their lesson someday. But do you know if there's any evidence 
evidence towards that either way? As far as evidence towards certain fuels being deemed as harmful to cook with, I'm not 100% sure. But I do know that there is examples of people using peat as, as a fuel uh, to cook with, people using dung as a fuel to cook mm. with. So all of the fuels that were in play have been used to cook with. I don't know if maybe people figured out it adds a taste or it, it just affects the food differently and stop using it. But I don't know or I haven't personally come across anything that says that that fuels were deemed dangerous for cooking. Yeah, it's interesting because there was a, I'll have to try to think of this. And if I can think of it, I'll put it in the show notes. But there was a recent documentary I saw where somebody was, they were at like a, a fancy restaurant, basically. And, and I want to say it was up in Norway or somewhere around in there, or actually maybe Iceland. And Iceland never had a lot of trees, right? At least not historically. Uh, maybe back in, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, it did. But a few thousand years ago, up until now, Iceland doesn't have that many trees. <laughs> so, but they were eating this food that was basically, I think it was smoked and it was smoked using dung that was locally available, right? I think it was sheep dung or something like that. And, and that was... Yeah, it is. It's a sheep dung. Yeah. And that was just crazy. They're doing that right now in this fancy restaurant. And they, he told them that after they, of course, took a bite, you know, because otherwise your senses might invent a taste that's just not there. <laughs> and they're like, oh, this exactly. is really good. How do you cook this? <laughs> yeah. So I've actually heard that, that using certain dungs, especially sheep dung, actually adds a nice smokiness to it. It almost adds a, uh, well, some people actually say it almost kind of smells like cannabis when it's cooking. Oh. So it adds like a very herby yeah. smell. So I, I would imagine it would add a nice flavor, almost like using, you know, like a, a really nice wood to smoke on a barbecue. It would almost have that same kind of quality. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Just wondering if maybe, uh, you know, your bigger connoisseurs out there when they, when they got down to it, were like, well, if we feed the sheep this, then their dung smells like this when they smoke it. And if we feed them this, it smells like that. I wonder if there were different connoisseurs and, and, and feeding them different things. Yeah. Well, looking at, you know, fr from, from, Actually examining the dung, there definitely would be major differences in, in, in the product, you know, the end product of the dung from what it, what it ate. In the Orkney Islands, a lot of sheep are either up on the hillsides or they're down on the coast and they're eating things like seaweed or they're eating things like heather and grasses. So you could imagine that would have a pretty wildly different effect on, on what their poo would be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. So, I, I, you know, I would imagine that, that there, you definitely would be able to know, you know, depending on the, on, on the diet of the animal. Yeah, because their digestion, I mean, anybody who's walked in a field and seen, you know, cow dung and anything like that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff left in it and their digestion isn't that great. You know, when they're just eating grasses all day long, there's a lot of those grasses that come back in it and it's, and I could see why they would have used stuff like that for even dried out and used for building and stuff like that, because it's basically, you know, grass and turns back into soil eventually, you know, that it's got a lot of uh, I guess like almost a grass temper in it. And depending on what kind of grass, you're burning that if you're going to smoke with it or cook with it. So it's definitely going to enhance the flavor. Yeah. And through the process of digestion, you're also, what you're left with is basically just the things that are going to burn. The animal takes out all the nutrients and all the things that are going to cause things like smoke and, and other, you know, other things like that. So it's almost like purifying the fuel, so to speak, as, as it goes through a, di a digestive system. Yeah. But cow poo is actually one of those really strange things because cow poo today, this is a, a really interesting side note on cow poop, but uh, cow poop today <laughs> is, is nothing like what it would have been in the Neolithic era about 5,000 years ago. Really? Cows today kind of kind of live in a constant state of diarrhea because they're only eating grass. Cows in the Neolithic would have had a more solid poop because they would have been eating a little bit more of a varied diet, not just grasses. Hmm. Okay. So cow poop in the Neolithic is actually a closer uh, facsimile to sheep dung today or uh, water buffalo poop. 
which is one of those crazy things. I, I now have, have knowledge of what animals poop does what and what animals poop looks like and how to compare poops, which I never thought I would get in a, uh, you know, in a, in a PhD, but you know, I, I guess I just got lucky. There you go. Uh, you're as long as somebody's not calling you Doctor Poop. I just hope that it's, it's you been know, thrown out there before. That hasn't on Fortunately, yet. it hasn't stuck. Fortunately, <laughs> it's stuck. There's so many puns that we could potentially exactly, say here. Yeah, go, but no, that's <laughs> that's interesting. I never really thought about that. Yeah, because cow poop in in the states here, we see it all the time, especially like in Nevada and places like that, where they're just you know, grazing rights are you know basically all over the place. But yeah, they're basically eating desert grasses and maybe even sagebrush and things like that. But I guess what would I mean? What would cows in Neolithic times even have been eating if it wasn't grasses? Is it just the grasses that cause that sort of diarrhea effect, or would it be uh, do leaves and other things? Because they're still vegetarians, but I guess leaves and other things are a little more fibrous maybe and and give them a little better diet yes yeah, so it would have been a little bit more of a woody diet and varied diets so they would have still probably mm. eaten the grasses and the leaves but there probably would have also been a more woody uh more substantial fibrous bit to it as well which would have hopefully made it hold together a little bit better like you see with a sheep today right right what alternative fuels can we talk about here? We've are, is there anything else that we haven't talked about is what I should say, because obviously wood, as you said, is the gold standard. We've talked about using dung as as fuel as well. Is there anything else that there's evidence of that they burned? Yeah. Um, and as you move around the world, you find different evidence of different fuels. It's basically like we were saying earlier, you use what you have. So there's evidence of peat being used, animal bone being used, animal fats being being rendered and used as lamp oils and things like that. So we've got dung, we've got bone, we've got peats, then seaweed, driftwood, you know, there's fuels of opportunity as well. So uh, you sure. can harvest seaweed, especially when the tide at low tide, there's some seaweeds that are completely exposed on the beach, some seaweeds wash, wash up after, after storms. So there's things that you can use there. There's obviously driftwood. There was a little bit of, of research done onto where the driftwood was coming from in certain places. So in the Orkney Islands, was the driftwood coming from North America across the Atlantic? Was it coming from possibly Scandinavian countries? coming across the North the North Sea. And there was a little bit of mixed results there. I think the majority of research was leaning toward it was coming from North America. Hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm interested in when you, met, you mentioned bone, because we find bone in harves all the time, but it's, it's generally assumed that the bone is tossed in after they're done eating something off of that bone, right? How do you know that, or what kind of evidence could you see? And this is really more for archaeologists listening, to be honest. If you're digging in a hearth feature or something like that, is there some sort of way, do you think, that you could tell that bone was not just tossed into the fire, but was actually used as a fuel? Or maybe that, or is the bone just maybe something that also burns and they're tossing it in as they're eating it. What's in my head, to be honest, Greg, is is like femurs or something arranged as logs <laughs> used as a fire like that. And yeah, that's a pretty funny, funny image. Just yeah. tossed in. <laughs> so I would imagine that, you know, you'd see things like marrow cracking for bones. And then once you get the marrow out of the bones, using things like that as a fuel, it's also this constant debate of exactly exactly the conversation we're, we're having right now is did the bones fall in the fire while they were cooking? Did somebody eat the last bit of their, their chicken drum, drumstick and throw the bone in the fire? Or was it mm -hmm. like a bunch of femurs stacked up in, 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 into some sort of log cabin fire? <laughs> right. you know, and, and I think that that's up for interpretation and up for debate. A couple of things that you can look for while actually excavating, uh, the color of bone varies wildly depending on how much it was heated and what temperature it was heated to. 
And then also bone, out of all the fuels that I worked with in my research, bone had the, the least amount of, of actual change from fire. It didn't lose a lot of mass. The color changed wildly, but the mass stayed generally the same. Only about a 30% difference in, in, in the weight of the bone from raw to being cooked at 900 degrees Celsius for six hours. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Bone heated to around 200 degrees turns like a charcoal if you leave it. Bone heated to about 400 degrees turns almost orange and smells like burnt hair. No matter how long it's out of the fire for, it always smells like burnt hair and it's awful. So I don't ever recommend heating bone up to 400 degrees. And then 900 degrees, (laughs) it turns the bone bleach white, which is the last thing I ever expected to see. So when I was doing my research and pulled the bone out of the... Uh, the furnace and it was bleach white. I thought, what did I do wrong? I know I had the oven on. I know I had the furnace going. And then it just, you know, I, I had to run the experiment again. And, and I realized that it was just, it, it turns bleach white at that high temperature. Hmm. So that's another thing to realize. If you see bone that's bleach white, it means it's been heated to around 900 degrees Celsius. So it probably was something that it wasn't being used as a fuel. It was it was probably thrown in. Maybe, maybe somebody was blacksmithing and, and letting something heat up and having their lunch and then threw it in. Wow, that's crazy. And, you know, and also 900 degrees. I mean, food starts to burn at around 255 degrees Celsius, somewhere around there, 250, 255. That's when things start to actually start burning. Anything over that, if, if you're seeing signs of that, that they probably weren't cooking or at least weren't roasting over an open fire. They were using some sort of cookware. So that would alleviate, you know, I, I don't know how many casseroles you made with bones in them, but, you know, if, if somebody's using cookware, there's probably <laughs> not going to be actual bone in it. Right, right. All right. Well, on that note, let's take our first break and then we'll come back on the other side and talk about some more alternative fuels and use in today's society. And then I want to talk about some experimental stuff. So we'll be back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C. C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code T-A-S. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode ninety-nine, and I'm talking with Dr. Greg Griffin about alternative fuels. And you would think this would be a crappy discussion, Greg, but it's not. It can get a little crappy, yeah, exactly. Sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> 
So let's let's talk about some other stuff here. So uh, we've talked about a bunch of different types of fuel sources, and there's a lot of talk in today's world about renewable fuel sources. Is there anything we can learn from the ancient past about renewable fuels or alternative fuels in our current discussion of renewable fuel sources? So believe it or not, this whole talk about renewable fuel sources versus fossil fuel sources has been going on since the Neolithic. Peat is actually considered mm. a fossil fuel. It is a finite resource. Oh. So people in ancient times who were relying on peat fuel sources, I don't know if they knew that it was a non-renewable fuel source. It, it is technically renewable, but but it's over such a long period of time that it wouldn't be beneficial to the people who are digging out the peat. It's generations before it renews itself. So you know the, these people, I don't know if they knew themselves, but they were actually having this debate whether they wanted to or not using something renewable like <laughs> dung or animal bone versus using peats, peat fuels, which which are not renewable. At least, at least not renewable in their lifespans. Sure. So this this debate has has been literally going on for thousands of years, if people knew it or not. So what are we learning from that now? Well, I think that what we're seeing here again is well, the Neolithic is an example where people really didn't have to think of the implications of their actions. They didn't know about global warming. They didn't know about any of these these you know potential negative ramifications. So we see people using exactly like we were saying earlier. People use what what's what's available, what's right next to them. And, you know, people aren't going to change their daily routine if they can avoid it. You know, especially we see that now. I mean, you know, if you're if you're on your way to work and the Dunkin' Donuts you usually go to is shut, that's going to throw your whole morning mm-hmm. off. <laughs> you know, uh, so I could imagine, you know, if, if you go to your peat field and there's no more peat left, that's more than just a head scratching moment. That's like, oh, you have to rethink your entire <laughs> settlement. That that could lead to the failure of a settlement. And, and we do see things like that happening. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of migratory cultures. Uh, I think that people are kind of sticking around in places until they're running out of fuels. You know, you have to think your campsite is the center of your population, right? And you have to think of what is a safe radius for you to create to to go out to get fuels. And once you pass that point of diminishing returns where you're traveling so far from the campsite to get fuel, what's the point of staying there? You have to move on to, to greener pastures, so to speak, or, or more more burnable pastures so you can go find more fuels. So I think that, that, that this is something that people have been worrying about and talking about for, for so long. And it's just one of those things that I guess it's, it's almost modern privilege that you know we're just thinking about this now. But, you know, people have been thinking about this for so long. You know, if I could go back in time, I'd like to be around for one of those discussions where, you know, they keep chopping out the peat, digging it up and burning it. And somebody's going, you know, that stuff's not coming back. Like the forest over there, when we cut down trees, they don't grow very fast, but we can actually physically see them growing, you know, in just a span of a year or two. You know, you can maybe get a fast growing species and like we have today and 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 actually have them be somewhat renewable. You still have to manage it. But peat and things like that, like you said, it's basically a non, for all intents and purposes, it's a non-renewable resource, not in their span of their lifetime. So what was that discussion like? You know, it's like I always think about the guy who chopped down the last tree on Easter Island. <laughs> it's like, was he yeah, like, exactly. well, screw it. <laughs> yeah, right. In for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that? What was that like? So, yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of seeing a version of that conversation now. People saying, hey, if we don't start really dialing back our use of, of you know, carbon producing fuels and carbon emitting fuels, we're going to run into some serious issues. We already are. Um, I think that, you know, we're quite literally living in this cyclical you know, as somebody who studies history and, and is an archaeologist, I'm sure mm-hmm. you see it all the time, how cyclical history can be. You know, I think yeah. we're just seeing 
one more loop in that corkscrew, so to speak. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. It's much more difficult today, too, because we're not tied to the landscape anymore. We can't, we're not intimately aware of what's available to us. We might hear on the news, oh, you know, fossil fuels are bad. It's bad for the environment. But when we start our car, we generally don't see anything coming out the tailpipe, you know, unless you've got a problem. And so you're like, well, how big of a deal is that? And when we need more gas for the car, we just go to the fuel station and they always have gas. You know, there's there. We just don't have like the the fuel short, like the gas shortages of the 70s caused innovation in car design. Right. And and we just haven't really had that since then enough to get people really thinking about why that's a problem. And I think back in prehistoric times, as we said, they would have seen the peat. You know, even if you're not the one out there digging it, you're aware of it and you can see it and you know that it's going away. You can see when that forest is being cut down. That's a very visible thing. But even like for us having uh, wood every year, you know, we bought wood last year for the first time because we had a wood fireplace and we had it delivered. I don't know where that wood came from. All I know is I made a phone call and wood appeared on my doorstep. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't exactly, know. Exactly. Exactly. What happened? I don't know what happened to get it there. <laughs> yeah. And then as, as, you know, as a society, as, as our technology has kind of grown, we have this logistical network and this way to move goods all over the world that wouldn't have been in place 5,000 years ago, you know, and, and like you were just saying, you know, if, if you use the peat, even if you're not the one who cuts it back, you know, 5,000, even, even a couple hundred years ago, you knew where the peat field was in your area. You knew who the peat cutter was, (laughs) you know, you were directly connected to all of these things and you knew this was happening. Uh, where now we we almost have these blinders on, like you're saying, you, you go to the to the gas station, you just put gas in your car, you don't know where it came from, you don't know how it got there, but you know it makes your car go. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and I think that that's that's removing that level of consciousness or that level of awareness is kind of what what makes it so easy for us to have the blinders on now. Like you were just saying, like oh, well, I don't see any black smoke pouring out of my tailpipe, I don't see what the problem is. But you know, uh, so that that kind of disconnects us to it. But then because we have this global network and we have the internet and we have this, you know, instant gratification where we can call people right away, it does call us back and we do see the effects that that's, that it is causing in, in a way, if right. that makes sense. You know, it's kind of, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other at a certain point, you know, where we're connected enough to have the fuel, but we're also connected enough to see the implications of the fuel, where on the adverse side of that thousands of years ago, or even a couple hundred years ago, people were so connected to where they were getting the fuel from. And it was such a small collective group that it wasn't adding all of this extra additional waste. It wasn't adding all of this. It was all very close knit and self-contained. Well, and this is why research like yours is, uh, is important because there's a growing, there, there has been for a while, but I think it's growing more steam every year, but there's growing movements for people to live in more community lifestyle environments where they're sharing resources. They have gardens They're you know, they're, they're living off the land. They see where their food is being produced because they're the ones producing it. You, you might still be having a division of labor where somebody might be a carpenter and they're maybe trading those skills for fruits and vegetables and, and meat and stuff like that. But at least they know where it comes from. And there's a bigger push towards that. In fact, I just saw it come over my Facebook feed the other day, an ad for this new thing that's it's right currently on the West Coast of the United States, and I can't even remember what it was called, but it's basically van life people. And they're creating these little communities. Once you have a membership, I think it was like $1,000 a month, even if you have your own van, but it, you basically bring your vehicle. That's where you live and sleep, but it's it's kind of like circling the wagons around this community resource that has a kitchen that has community spaces that has a garden that has these other things that you can share and you can move from hub to hub to hub, you know, just with, with your one membership. And that's what, that's what it seems like a lot of people are being 
more attracted to, I guess, in the, in our society. So we've talked about these alternative, some of these alternative fuels, obviously wood and dung. And we've talked about how in the first segment, yeah, you know, I saw that documentary, some fancy restaurant in Iceland using that to cook some things. But in reality, everyday use, the common person, what kind of fuels are in use today that were used in Neolithic times besides like wood and dung? What kind of things are people still using in some, some cultures around the world? Peat is actually still still used quite a bit. Really? Where I live in the UK, yeah, peat, peat is, is one of the number one fuels for heating your home in the, the Northern Isles of Scotland and the Highlands of Scotland. You can even get peat delivered to your house where I live in the UK and in England. Peat is still very much in use. And also peat is a huge part. That's crazy. Yeah, it really is when you think about it. But peat is also a huge part of the whiskey industry. Huh. Yeah. Especially in, in the Highlands and Islands, you know, they have to roast the barley somehow. And, and the peat. Uh, well, I guess so gives it its smoky profile. It gives it that flavor. Some people will say, depending on where the peat fields are from, what the peat is made of, it, it can drastically affect the flavor of the whiskey. I'm a big fan of Highland Park whiskey, and they use heather peat, which is like a brush, almost like a bush. Uh, it's almost like an evergreen bush. That adds quite uh, an interesting scent and flavor to the whiskey, in my opinion. Hmm. But you know, some people would say that they prefer you know grass peat, and I don't know if it needs to be explained. But for anybody who's not 100% sure, peat is basically decomposed plant material that is buried in, in the soil, and over time it compresses and becomes almost like a charcoal. There's different levels of peat from where you can still see plant fibers to where it literally just looks like a lump of coal, but in a stratigraphic layer. So. I mean, let's talk about peat for a second here. First off, I love Highland Scotch in in general, <laughs> but it's interesting thinking about those different flavor profiles you can get it from different peats. I knew that peat was. I guess I I completely forgot about it, but I knew that peat was part of that because I've you know read up on it, and and you definitely get that smoky flavor to it. But never really never really thought about that. So, but as we just discussed, peat is not is not a quickly renewable resources. And, and you know the other crazy thing is. Why do we always hear about peat in like Scotland and the UK? What what about the environment that peat forms in? What I mean, where else in the world can this form? Why is it special up there? I'm not, you know, I, I don't know of any peat sources here in the United States or anything like that. But why not? Uh, there, there, there definitely are peat sources all over the world. Um, it, I think one of the sure. things is that a lot of people don't don't use it, and up there it became such a viable fuel source because it was readily available and because they didn't have anything okay. else to use. So it just kind of became part of the, you know, not the lexicon, but it became part of everyday life for them, and it just sure. maintained itself. It just maintained that way. So peat's available. Basically, peat is anywhere where there's lots of flooding or periods of wet. If you start off with a field, and then that field becomes flooded. Everything decomposes and decays. Everything deposits on top of that. You know, it's it's from periods of wet and dry, and then and then plant material decomposing un- underneath it, underneath the new deposits. Uh, so you know, peat usually forms anywhere from a couple centimeters, uh, say, say anywhere from fifty centimeters below the surface to several meters. Okay. Depending on the, the size of the deposit of plant material and the the time at which it's actually been developing. All right, then. Well, that's crazy. So you've mentioned experimental archaeology. Got your your bio here that you left for us. Have you done any experimental archaeology in this fuels space that we can talk about? 
Yeah, so my entire PhD was based on using modern fuels as uh, facsimiles or analogs for ancient fuels, and then kind of putting them through their paces, burning them to different temperatures, which I, which I mentioned earlier with the animal bones, burning them at different temperatures and different durations of time to kind of just see what happened to them. And then uh, not only visually, but then putting them uh, through a scanning electron microscope, doing magnetic susceptibility measurements, checking the pH and seeing chemically what changed in these fuels at different stages of heat. And then what I did after I kind of created this database of, of data on what happens to fuels at certain intervals of temperature and time, I then did the same exact analytical methods on archaeological fuel deposits, archaeological uh, ashes, hearth deposits, midden dumps, things like that. And I compared the results, and then I developed a, a method of statistical analysis to compare the two data sets and find matches. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'd be able to do uh, the analysis on, say, a hearth deposit from a settlement in Orkney and be able to tell you, I'm pretty sure that the fuel that these people were using in this actual deposit and in this context was peat and it was heated to around 900 degrees Celsius. So I was able to not only match with the fuel type, I was able to match with the temperature as well, which really helps in interpretation. Like for instance, the Noah of Swandro, which is uh, one of my case studies from my PhD, I was looking into one one particular building there. It's a Pictish structure that was used as a smithy. And I found quite a bit of peat deposited in their middens there, but it was all peat that was heated to 900 degrees Celsius. So it was a it was a really interesting thing to figure out. Well, well, were they using some sort of some sort of peat charcoal? Were they using? There were obviously a bellows was in play there to get to get the, anything heated to that temperature. But uh, it, was, it was an interesting question trying to figure out before it was definitely confirmed it was a smithy building, and then XRF was used on the soil deposits in the floor of the building, and then obviously with associated finds that came out in in subsequent years, we were able to to you know with beyond a shadow of a doubt identify it as a smithy building. And then it started to make more sense. Okay, that's why the peat was heated to this temperature. So it was being used in the in the smithy process. But then that starts this whole other debate of, well, you know, a blacksmith would have been wanting only charcoal to use for, for blacksmithing. There would have been an area of woods that he would have been dedicated to coppicing. He would have either had somebody to help him maintain it to, to produce charcoal for him to then use in the forge. But you can actually make uh, charcoal out of peat. You can, you can charcoal peat. And you can use that hmm. to, to get to these almost identical temperatures uh, as you can with wood charcoal. So it starts this this whole debate up again back to, well, were they using peat? Were they using wood? My research tends to point to the fact that they were using peat and it was used at a temperature high enough to be working metal. Nice. Hey, you mentioned XRF and I know that stands for X-ray fluorescence. Can you tell us exactly what you learn from using X-ray fluorescence and maybe if you know how it works? <laughs> Well, so my research focus, that was a guy, one of the researchers from Bradford, his name is Jerry McDonald. He's a well-known archaeometallurgist. He, he did all the XRF surveys on, on in situ at the Nova Swandra. Oh, okay. I focus more on SEMEDX, uh, so energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy. And the way that that works is it uh, fires, so you load things up into, a, you load your samples up into a vacuum chamber, and then a proton gun shoots uh, excited particles at your sample and what happens is that causes electron promotion so you add a proton into the atoms of things that causes electron promotion 
And then when the electron promotion takes place, it lets off X-rays, and those X-rays are indicative of what element is is present. Uh-huh. Okay. It catches the x-rays basically for, for the non-fancy version. It shoots a beam at the stuff and then the stuff shoots out other things that tell you what it is basically. <laughs> nice. That's how I had to keep telling myself before I learned all, all the, you know, the proton <laughs> gun and all that stuff. Right. No, that's perfect. It's a really great method because not only do you get the elemental analysis side of things, you get what elements are present and in what quantity, but you also get really nice imaging if you use the scanning electron microscope. So you get this this really great, sometimes you know, thousands of times magnified images. Nice. All right. Well, let's leave it right there then. And we are going to take our final break and we'll come back and wrap up this discussion on alternative fuel use in ancient times. Back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the final segment of the Archaeology Show, episode 99. And we are talking to Dr. Greg Griffin about alternative fuels. So, Greg, I'm curious, you got your PhD done. One of your focuses on the PhD was was fuel use, of course. And this here said the bio you sent me says production of goods and fuel use. So what are you doing now? Are you continuing your study of fuel use? Are you publishing any other papers on this? Are you moved on to bigger and better things? I'm curious as to where your your study of ancient fuels is going and proceeding now. Yeah, so I am definitely continuing the research. I'm currently working with Dr. Mike Copper. He's also a uh, University of Bradford alum. And we're looking at, who would have guessed it, but sheep poo and its use in firing pottery. Dr. Copper did some some pretty cool experiments. He recreates ancient pottery and does experimental archaeology in the firing methods. And he also does quite a bit of work with recreating the decorations, recreating the pottery itself, using ancient clays from, from subsoils. Uh, he does really interesting work. Nice. So him and I uh, are going to be working together using sheep dung. But what, what he did was he tried some sheep dung as a fuel and he learned or noticed after he, after his pots were done firing that there was a lot more ash left in his firing pit than normal, which my research actually backed up that, that sheep dung does produce more ash than other fuels. What he's thinking is that this ash that builds up around the pots actually acts as an insulator. And as the pottery is uh, reaching its quartz conversion temperature and then recooling down, having this extra insulation around it creates stronger, safer pots. You have better survival of pots through the firing process. So we're going to actually try to do some some more experimental archaeology, maybe get some thermocouples involved, see exactly what temperatures are holding where, see what kind of insulatory properties the ash does have, then obviously you know, go back and do some more chemical analysis on them and see if there's a way to figure out what fuels were used just by looking at the pottery. If Does the fuel itself leave any kind of signatures? 
in the fabric of the pottery? And then what kind of signatures does that leave on the soil surface or in the actual burnt horizon that we could then possibly use to identify fuels? Nice. What I like about this is I always tell people in archaeology, we, we try to use as many sources as we can to try to answer basically the same question. A lot of times that question is age, you know, how old is something that in cultural resource management archaeology, where I work, a lot of times you, you really are concerned with age first and then, you know, more details later. But we use like on a historic site, you know, you'll cross-reference the cans, the glass, the ceramics, and you'll say, okay, well, the date range is basically this. And, and you're talking about a similar thing, you know, doing basically being able to analyze other stuff through your experimental archaeology and say, okay, what type of fuel was possibly used here? If we don't have evidence for that fuel right now, you, maybe it's all burned away. There's nothing there, but we can look at this and say, well, you know, maybe this was used to do that. That is super cool. But one thing I'm curious too is I'm always curious with experimental archaeology, how you treat bias. And, and by that, I mean, you know, you're a you know, 21st century person and you have 21st century knowledge of things and somebody in Neolithic times would have had their own high knowledge of what they were doing. But I'm wondering, and you, this might just be theoretical and we can just, hide, you know, this is just a discussion because we don't really know the answer here. But I'm wondering like the ash around the pot, is that something I wonder if they would have known as a, as a process or if it was just a byproduct of their process and it just happened to work or if somebody's learning how to make these pots and, and, a, and an elder walks by and says, hey, you don't have enough ash around that pot, it's going to crack <laughs> or something like that. Or was it just like, did it just happen and it's just a process and how it worked and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And the, did they know that they needed that layer or that kind of thing. You know what I mean? I'm wondering when you guys do experimental archaeology, is that kind of stuff conscious on your mind? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, you have to approach it head on and, and you have to understand that you do have a bias. You, you are a person from modern times trying to understand what somebody did with archaic tools. So you do have to, have, that, that is implicit in what, in what we're doing. You do have to kind of at the forefront, always keep that in your mind. But then you do have to think, well, these people were very intelligent, obviously. They were able to survive sure. in, these, in these marginal climates, in the fringe of society. You know, They were very resourceful and intelligent people. They probably would have noticed. They would have known you know, through either an elder coming by and saying, hey, if you don't do this, that's going to happen. Or you know, uh, the way that these – a lot of production assembly type – jobs were passed down was was you know through an apprenticeship basically you would learn to become the potter then you would be the village's potter all that information you'd, you'd end up getting all the information from all the potters before it filtered down to you so you would have eventually known that hey if, if you can't insulate the temperature your pottery is going to crack i don't know if people would have known sheep makes sheep poo makes more ash but they would have said hey the last time we did use the sheep poo more pots survived kind of like what you were saying I think there's more ash. I think this is definitely helping us to make better pots. And then if you look at, uh, especially in the Orkney Islands, the survival of pottery is pretty varied depending on the time period. Uh, so you have some pots that are fantastic quality and they're just, you know, you could probably use them today. They're so, they're so well preserved. And then at other times in the Orkney Islands, you have pots that are so friable and so brittle that you don't even know how they were used one time. They might have been disposable pots. They were, they were so poorly fired and so poorly made. So you have to wonder what happened from making pots that weren't so great to making these really fantastic pots, what clicked in somebody's head or what knowledge was spread around that area. Uh, the other thing you have to think about the Orkneys, it's, it's, it's uh, about 65 islands in an archipelago. You know, it, it's a really interesting microchasm for the spread of information and the spread of ideas. So if one thing mm -hmm. originates on, on one island, 
at what time period do you start seeing it elsewhere? At what time period do you start seeing it on the mainland? At what time period do you start seeing it in mainland Europe? You know, so you can really start kind of deciphering from this microcosm of, of the Orkneys is, is the spread of information and how quickly the spread of technology happens, because that's always a debate that archaeologists have. Are people figuring out these things all independently? And that's why they're all kind of similar. Is it, is it just this, you know, uh, there's only one way for things to go in progression and eventually everybody will find the right way? Or is one person really being a pioneer and then making sure that they disseminate that information to everybody else? Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a combination of both. It could be that there's people in different regions figuring out similar things, and then that information spreads, and that's why you have similar tools that look so wildly differently. You know, uh, just to talk archaeological terms, the London pointing trowel to the Philadelphia pointing trowel mm-hmm. to the style of trowels they use in, in excavations in Germany. You know, there's there's all these different tools just in our own field, and that's just you know between three different locations of digging. You know, I think that for however many applications there are, there can be that many tools to do the job. But again, there is going to be one that works better than another. Yeah, that's true. And that makes me think of, say, projectile points or arrowheads in the United States here. I've worked all over this country and everywhere you go, you know, you see generally the same, maybe not in this exact same time periods, just whatever they call them, just the same date ranges, right? But you'll see the same styles of projectile points all over the country, yet regionally they all have different names and they maybe appeared in different times. And the question always is, well, was there a cultural transmission of ideas across the entire country? You know, you point to the Clovis point or something like that. It's found all across the Western hemisphere, you know, all the way down to yeah. South America. And, or was that just like the best way to do it? And they eventually, everybody just landed on that because that was that there were few ways that you could actually do this thing. And that was the best way to do it. And as the megafauna started to really disappear, you didn't really need spears anymore. So they said, well, let's, let's make smaller ones to get these smaller game or, or let's see if we can pierce the ribs of these larger animals with a smaller point or something like that. And it's just, you know, animals dying out was somewhat universal. And then the, the, the changing of that technology. So it's really cool doing this experimental archaeology and trying to figure out the answers to those questions. So that's really amazing. I've always been such a fan of experimental archaeology. It's something that I didn't even really know existed until about six years ago. I had already been an archaeologist for a few years before I learned that you could actually carry out, you know, archaic activities in modern times and use that to, to answer questions of the past. It was one of those mind-blowing things when, when, I, when I found that out and had that, that revelation. You know, it was, it was really quite, quite a formative experience for me. And that's one of the reasons why I started doing what I'm, what I'm doing, uh, you know, is, is because I, I really, really am a big fan of being able to say, okay, well, I wonder how people used fire in, in this time period. And, okay, well, let's, let's build a fire and see what we can do. Let's see, let's see what can be done. And that, that's a really cool way to handle science. And I think that as people are able to kind of blend traditional sciences, like, like what I do, blending analytical chemistry with experimental archaeology, it adds more credence to experimental archaeology. You know, 10 years ago, experimental archaeologists were oh, the crazy guy who's using, you know, an atl in his, in, in, his, in his yard, you know, to now mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, that, that, that same guy is now presenting papers at, at major conferences talking about the techniques for harvesting the materials, the techniques for making the tools to then, to then make the, the equipment. You know, he, he, that, yeah. that's becoming a really well-respected field where 10, 15 years ago, it was kind of on the fringe in and of itself. It, it wasn't even as well-respected as it should have been. 
Yeah, indeed. And, and going back to a point you made earlier, thinking about this, you said, you know, we know we know that they were intelligent people. And when I say they, I see anybody prehistorically, right? They were intelligent people able to live off the landscape and figure those things out. I mean, for a couple hundred thousand years of being humans, they were able to figure out how to live on the landscape. Whereas I'm pretty sure most of us today, if we were dropped off in the middle of nowhere with nothing but the clothes on our back, and, and that's even an advantage that they wouldn't have had, I'm pretty sure I'd die within a week. <laughs> like, And I know things that probably some other people don't because I'm an archaeologist. I know about the past and I'm pretty sure I would still die within a week. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, but if, think think of the, the reflective side of that. If we took somebody, a Neolithic person and said, okay, go make a podcast, they, they would have no idea what to do either. <laughs> you know? So it, it's it's one of those same things. You, you kind of have the skills for your period and chronology. You kind of have the, the skills that go with the time. I guess. But I know what you mean. Yeah, if only you could survive off making podcasts, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, think, I think sometimes it's, a, it's the same feat just trying to yeah. make it, make a living as an archaeologist, you know, especially especially now. Yeah, you know, it's 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 always it's always interesting times being an archaeologist. But it, it, the the great thing that I found, especially working with so many different archaeologists and so many different applications. Everybody really is here because they love what they do and everybody does it because it's something they're passionate about. Nobody is, right. nobody's becoming an archaeologist, especially not a field archaeologist to chase a paycheck and to make a, make a, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to be a millionaire being a, being a shovel bum. That is true. Uh, people always say, you know, yeah, what, what, uh, what kind of money do they make? And I say, well, just, just look in the parking lot of most archaeologists. Half of them probably don't even have cars and the ones yeah, that exactly. do, they're not driving families. So <laughs> nice. So, so as we're wrapping this up, Greg, is there anything that you have learned through your study of ancient fuels and alternative fuels that you would impart to people today? If you had one thing to tell people from your research about what we're doing to our world today and how what we can learn from, from the things that you have studied, what would that be? I would have to say keeping things local. If you look at especially the most successful ancient societies, everything is kept local. Like we were talking about before. If you know where things are coming from and you know the guy who's cutting the peat for you to burn for dinner, you know the guy who's, who's going to catch the, the animal that you're going to then have him butcher and you're going to cook for dinner, that eliminates a lot of waste. You, know, you don't want to put all that on somebody. You know, uh, the guy at the meatpacking plant who's packing up the chicken right now, you, that has no bearing on your life. But you know, Bill the hunter and, and Jim the peat cutter, you know, you're, gonna, you're going to want to hang out with them after work. You don't want them to have, have a crazy day. And, you know, you're, you're all relying on each other, you know, not only for them to carry out their roles in, in, in the rest of the society, but they're going to be the guys who are going to show up to help you put a new roof on your house. They're going to be the guys that are going to, you know, help you put up a barn or help you build a fence or, you know, there was this real camaraderie and this real reliance on people. And even that's cyclical, you know, people start off with these family units and it slowly builds into these communities and then, you know, in the, in the Neolithic, we have pretty large communities. And then over the last 5,000 years, we've kind of broken back down into these singular family units again. People obviously live in cities all over the place, but I've lived in places for over a year and hadn't met some of my neighbors, you know, where yeah, a couple hundred years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. So I think that, you know, the one thing that if, if we're looking at the past that we could take away from it is try to think a little bit smaller, try to think about, you know, where things are coming from, how you are acquiring things. And what kind of waste does that produce and how much could you avoid if you thought a little bit smaller and a little bit more locally and maybe put some money into a local person's pocket rather than a large corporate chain as well. That all comes back and that all does have benefits. 
Well, that is a fantastic point to end on. And I want to thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Greg Griffin. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. This has been awesome. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.